0: G'day, my name's Martin Murray and you're listening to the In The Paddock podcast, where we talk all things farming. G'day guys, Martin here, just jumping in at the start of the podcast. So today we've got Rob Eccles on, private agronomist and research consultant. Uh, We'll get a bit more into his research career in another episode, but today we've got him on to talk about high-performance pastures and how you can get the most out of your grazing land. So we're talking about setting up for a pasture, sowing a pasture, maintaining the pasture, and uh, managing the pasture, as well as how you can really, really increase the production off your farm. He was talking up to 30% gains uh, compared to standard systems. So really interesting topic, although we did have a few technical difficulties. I had a bit of an issue with my internet connection. I'm on Skymaster satellite internet, so it was a bit laggy, but I've been through, cleaned it up as best as I can, and uh, I think it's pretty good, uh, at least from what it was. So bear with it. It's a great podcast. Have a listen. You'll enjoy it. Cheers. Uh, G'day, and welcome back to the In The Paddock podcast. Today, we're here with Rob Eccles, uh, private agronomist, consultant, and uh, research agronomist as well. and uh, We're here to talk about high-value, high-performance pastures. Um, so, Rob, can you just start with a bit of your background and how you got into working in this space?
1: Sure. So, Martin, I've probably been in the industry you know, probably 30 plus years now, I would say. And these, this pasture system that we call short-term high-performance pastures, it sort of evolved over you know, a few decades working with um, commercial agronomists and also um, farmers, where we're looking for a way of um, finishing animals quicker uh, on the on a rain-fed system. Um, it really depends where you are in Australia, but this focuses more on temper- rainfall areas and probably the cooler uh, tableland type areas, and focuses on where we got rainfall it can be a very erratic, but generally 700 mils, average rainfall. And how it evolved was that the, we observed over the animals, when they get to their market um, back in terms of weight, the younger they are, the better the carcass quality, the, the better eating value. And generally, there can be premium prices paid for animals that, that achieve that weight. They can be you know, six months younger than than the same genetic material that They're grown in harder. It's, the other thing that problem we're trying to solve was that um, generally in Australia in the temperate areas carve cattle uh, towards the end of winter and the animals will get weaned in autumn. Then they'll have a setback in winter. And then if they're trying to reach heavier... Yielding weight. Sometimes the next winter comes before they actually get to spec. So so people get stranded with animals that are you know, in excess of uh, 16, 18 months. And the, the idea was to get them finished quicker and, and get them to market spec. So find a, a premium price while doing that, but also uh, lighten up that winter feed
0: demand. So. Not only were you were you getting your market like your, your animals to market spec quicker, were you also finding that you're able to increase your carrying capacity and export more beef or lamb uh, per hectare than they were before?
1: Certainly, that was one of the benefits of that of the system. Um, we're putting you know, high inputs and high quality um, varieties and species in the ground, and we found. A typical farm to finish the animals that were born on the farm, we only needed about eight, maybe ten percent of the farm to be sold to these types of pastures, and that lends itself to um, either uh, running more breeders, because which is obviously a profitable, one of the profitable things to do in a a breeding enterprise. And farmers, um, once they uh, sold their animals, they found. That were bred on the farm, they found they could actually do a um, a trading enterprise, and probably half or more of the farmers that use this system, that's what they evolve into doing. They they find not only they get the animals off earlier, um, they've got surplus feed to then start trying to take advantage of um, many animals out there that that need to be sold as a as a weaner or sold
0: as a, a store animal. Yeah. So getting their cattle, they're getting their animals to market quicker, better quality, and getting more animals off those same hectares, uh, while also not having to feed out in winter. Was that correct?
1: Absolutely. So this feed is high, high digestible uh, grass. So the animals actually walk around and obviously feed themselves. So rather than having like you know, meals on wheels with people feeding grain or hay, that the animals actually just eating what's grown in the paddock so it's much cheaper way of feeding the animal is to, to grow it in the paddock and let them do the work grazing so that was one of the, the advantages that was cost uh, to maintain animals during those uh, cool
0: no that's well that's that's good i mean one of the things that i've never quite understood about the um, about the tablelands is why they do feed out over winter and why they haven't been able to find a way to fill that feed gap but Obviously, these uh, high-value pastures, high-performance pastures, are one way of doing that. Can you break it down for us? What are they comprised of, um, and what do you need to do to to get one in and get them established? Okay, so
1: you you can choose your species and your varieties, but generally, what we do with these systems is we use uh, short-term ryegrasses. So there's many in the marketplace. Um, people probably. When they use these systems, are familiar with sowing a winter cereal. So they might be sowing oats or, or cereal rye. Some might have even be putting a, a fresh beaker in. But these pastures are generally short term rye grasses, um, usually Italian species. And in the rye grass breeding world, there's been plenty of hybridization in that uh, transition from annual to Italian to perennial rye grasses, which all can. And also there's species that can be crossed with rye grasses as well. So,
0: Sorry there, guys. We've just had a bit of internet drama. Um, not 100% where that will have cut out in the recording or not. But we'll just jump back in there. So we're at hybridised rye grasses, the main base of the uh, pasture. You're putting anything else in it, like other grass species or legumes, um, maybe some uh, like herbs or brassicas so do you have some chicory or forage rape in there as well probably the best way to to
1: continue on with the 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 recipe of what we're putting in probably just uh, define what these are so these are not high input pastures that some people call which which is where you got your improved temperate species like tall fescue and phalaris and coxfoot um, which you would put them in and expect them to grow 5, 10, 15 years forever is always the dream these are short term pastures like short rotation pastures so they're generally based on a, on a like we're saying like a, a ryegrass or, um, rye or a hybrid of Italian perennial ryegrasses or a hybrid of Italian ryegrasses and fescues which are sometimes called festalonians but the breeder will cross them back to ryegrass so they're Generally, like eighty-seven percent ryegrass and a little bit of fescue, and and what those hybrids offer, as opposed to straight, say annual ryegrass or Italian ryegrass, is you get the ability to be like a perennial, or perennialized, but more a biennial. And a biennial grass in the grass ryegrass world is is something that you can not just keep it for two years. If you manage it right, which we can cover a bit later, if you manage it right. You can get them you know, lasting two, three, maybe five years in, in a little bit um, softer, cooler environment, which there's plenty of that in the tablelands. So, so these pasture mixes are what I would generally do: would put a um, a perennial ryegrass that's hybridised with a little bit Italian, and and I can usually get them to last uh, two to f- Five years, but commonly three years is what I usually achieve with the with the management tricks that that we'll talk about. And in that, I'll put a, a tetraploid ryegrass and I'll put a, a diploid ryegrass. So what does that mean? The, the tetraploid ryegrass has higher digestibility and higher feed intake, and they'll tend to um, not. Um, um, conquer the, the diploid ryegrasses but they'll dominate in the first year or so and they're a bit more winter active and then pretty much the same genetic material as a diploid will be give you a grass that has higher tiller density and and getting a ryegrass through the summer is all about numbers. You know the more tillers that survive on a ryegrass the more likely it'll get through the summer. So your diploids tend to continue on second and third year with your tetraploids um, still there but fading out and with with these ryegrass based high performance pasture systems as soon as you get rain um, you've got feed so the second and third year even though you've got a little bit less digestibility with your diploid varieties you're getting a lot more feed coming out of the or during the summer if it's wet, but coming out of the summer and, and you've got a lot more feed on offer than you would ever achieve if you're using a, a forage system. So that's, that's the base of the pasture. And then we always put in, for many reasons, but mainly to improve animal intake and also improve the, um, the feed value or the, or the nutrition. We always throw clovers in with the these rye grasses and the clovers will depend on the on the climate so we've got colder cooler and and regular sort of rainfall climates will use white clover and red clover and we'll also include and tend to let it dominate the mix and we're in a bit more drier climates we'll put annual clovers in which are typically bursine clover and balancer clover and arrowleaf clover and 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 as a good workhorse for most southern pasture systems you know, sub clover then on top of that we'll put forage herbs in uh, which uh, would be chicory and plantain and those varieties will depend on on the situation um, where the paddocks are being put in and the the herbs obviously give you minerals and, and also they give you um, animal dry matter intake increase as well. So, so you could have a pasture that dominates in ryegrass and have it as a, a monoculture if it's necessary for weed control um, and a little bit of, bit of ease. But, but we always mix them up with clovers and, and chicory because we probably get a 30% animal performance increase from
0: doing that martin. Yeah, right. That's a pretty big gain. Um, so it, go- it is, it is yes. Yeah. yeah, 30% is, is massive. Like, if you could add 30% value to, to anything on your farm, that's that's incredible. Um, yeah, that's...
1: Yeah, so, so I, qualify, I qualify that. So they obviously use resources the ryegrass doesn't use. So you, it all depends on how you measure performance of a pasture, but I always measure you know, kilos per hectare of live like not kilos of dry matter but juice. So it's it's commonly known in, in you know dairy systems, which they generally go for the maximum volume for because they worry about milk per hectare um in a in a system where they just graze every 21 days. Um, whereas here we're we're interested in in the animal, you know, carcass um per hectare production so you'll get 30% more kilos of carcass per hectare but you won't get 30% more dry matter just make that clear yeah
0: well at the end of the day you're not paid on the dry matter you're not growing hay you're growing beef or lamb you're you're paid per kilo of of that so that's that's what you need to be targeting true so what do you need to do to um I guess we'll go back a step we'll we can go look at um Hmm. at maintaining these pastures because when you're getting that sort of performance, I'm, I'm assuming you've got to feed them. But going back to establishment, like what do we need to establish them? If I'm dealing in subtropicals, you know, I'm normally trying to clean those paddocks up for at least three years beforehand with really good summer fallows and oats crops or something else in winter, which I can get a pretty broad spectrum weed control in. Um, what What should I be looking at? in the lead up to putting in one of these high uh, performance pastures or is it as simple as just spray it out and drill it in probably
1: the latter um, i'll probably emphasize that this this is a pasture system that that's where you're in more temperate environments um, if you're on the you know just describing new south wales on the on the drier slopes and in the plains you wouldn't be considering these pastures you'd be looking at uh, tablelands probably you know coastal systems and and your you know your slopes and plains but more the upper slopes and plains so this would be where we'd be using them as far as ground prep um, usually these are used as your prep to put a long-term pasture in so as you're alluding you you go to a um, a paddock that's just a degraded Improved pasture that you want to improve Or you go to um, naturalised pasture You could call it native pasture But often what we call native pastures In terminology is a combination of you know Weedy, intrusive, exotic annual grasses Barley grass and, and vulpia And and a, uh, wild phalaris, etc So you're probably also dealing with thistles um, Commonly as well So these pastures you they're ideal in these, um, you know, high rainfall zone temper areas, because you can just do your fallow spray from wherever the, the pasture was just in recently. Just you know, do a, a typical system. I would recommend people is yeah, you know, do your glyphosate knock down um, at, at the end of spring or or whenever that is where you've got your nuisance weeds, your thistles and, and annual grasses trying to, to go to seed. So you, you do your, your knockdown spray maybe a major knockdown spray and it usually falls in around about October, maybe November, a bit cooler climates. And then you'll just keep that country fallowed. Um, obviously graze it when you get some volunteer grasses or, or other things come up. But just keep it, keep it fallowed and then just direct drill these pastures in um whenever the the heat of summer's gone. So um if I was naming towns like you know the higher altitudes around Orange and and uh some of the you know, Nullo Mountain around Mudgee or or the walker, you know, you'd probably be looking to have your last um part of summer somewhere around about the middle of February. And you might be looking to sow these late February, early March. Whereas if you're on the slopes um, where you still have quite temperate climate, you may be planting these in you know, April, so a bit later on. But you, you just prepare your ground as a zero-till or no-till ground and then just use your um, common no-till um, pasture seeder to, to to plant, you know, triple disc opener or baker boot. The ryegrass is – you know, in the pasture world always termed a, a freak of nature because they're so forgiving and how well or badly you you saw, drilled into the ground and they're very competitive and usually you'll find that they'll dominate uh, weeds that, that you might experience and also you will probably be grazing them you know as, as little as six weeks and without much doubt you'd be grazing them eight weeks or so 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 in the ground prep, and, and choosing a paddock as long as you can drive a tractor without turning it over you can you can put them in and with a, a no-till um strategy you know you're not going to get a, erosion or anything like that. So they're they're quite um easy to get in the ground and and quite easy to establish. Um, and then if we are aware of what's coming in terms of weeds you you choose your 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 herbs, your chicory and and plantain and your clovers according to what herbicides you're anticipating using but but generally you've got you know, generic um, herbicides that you can use these days to control it you know you can use mcpa you can use um, you know bromoxynol. Um it's not hard to get the weeds under control and and if you get a broadleaf weed that's really um concerning you where well, you can just take out all your legumes and your, your chicories and just feed your ryegrass because um, that's doing the heavy lifting for you in these pastures
0: yeah, you're not wrong about that ryegrass it is well it's the reason it's such a good weed to be honest when you're a cropper um, is just it will come up whether you know it's, it's buried down a bit or sitting on the surface it will germinate and it is very aggressive and very persistent. We, in a previous role, we had some uh, forage trials down on the Liverpool Plains and it was mainly oats and dual purpose cereals focus. We had a couple of strips of ryegrass and a couple of strips of brassica and the ryegrass really blew me away. Uh, it yielded just as much dry matter per hectare as the oats. And when the cows yes. we grazed off these plots after taking the samples, and when the cows went in, they grazed that ryegrass back to the roots and I thought it was done. I'm like, well, that was an interesting little play, but there's no way that's coming back. But sure enough, it was back and we could have cut that again in half the time it took the oats to get a cut. So it was a mm. it, very impressive. Um, but I still haven't been able to bring myself to sow it on my country. Just... <laughs> Just because i I spend a fortune trying to spray it out of my crops uh,
1: oh, i know it's it's a bit of a paradigm shift i I know what you're saying because i i spent my early parts of my career um on the yeah Liverpool plains and uh certainly we had yeah good slopes but we had good black soil plains and a bit of undulation with red soil but it was really you put a forage sorghum or or millet or hybrid or one of those in where you put oats in and and then to come along and put ryegrass in you people will look at you like you're you are know, insane or, or you you're gonna contaminate the whole cropping system. But but these these species, they the ryegrass world as you well aware, Martin, that the the annual ryegrass species that is the weed, the one that's herbicide resistant, it's not related. To to the Italian ryegrasses and these hybrids or fescues in any way, so they they they're not going to be causing a, a a weed problem. Like they they're like comparing a um I don't know um a wildebeest to a cow. You know they're they're that genetically different. It's not going to be a, a a weed problem at all. And when I when I introduced these um, with encouragement of seed companies back there in the nineties when all these plant breeders' rights varieties um, came out because, because back in ancient history, for many you know, 1987s when plant breeders' rights came to Australia and New Zealand, it enabled plant breeders to invest a lot of money into improving um, genetics of forages, among other things, and and it, and they could actually you know get some sort of return from doing it. So we've got leaps and bounds with things like phalarises and fescues and ryegrasses and, and clovers and, and loosens from that time. So so when in the nineteen nineties when when I suggested some of my clients, you know, let's put a short term ryegrass in rather than oats, I got really funny looks, but but as you were alluding to, they're not as tall and, and flashy as a cereal, but in terms of dry matter, they're much the same. Um, and the
0: feed quality it, was probably, far better.
1: The feed quality is far better, as you're saying, yeah. So, your, your typical ryegrass defaults to around about 20% protein generally. Um, and then the you know, usually 11.5 megajoules, where a cereal, you know, they can hover down to probably 12%, maybe 14% protein. And the energy can drop, you know, around about 9 or 10.5. So, you're you Significantly less than ryegrasses. So, again, if you talk about um, kilos per hectare of livestock production, um, as well as just the individual animal performance, the the, the ryegrasses were, were superior. So, so that's what got me hooked. Yeah, you, know, you these systems, you've got to measure. If you don't measure, you'll go default back to looks looks better visually in terms of height and dry matter. So,
0: um, correct you want to talk visual looks i know um we also did forage sorghum trials, and you know you get these plants taller than yourself and plenty of stem, plenty of leaf, and then when you actually cut them and weigh them, you find out there's actually less dry matter there than there would be an oats crop, which is um yes doesn't quite compute when you when you're looking at it, but there's a lot of space between the leaves
1: so, certainly
0: and and that that's
1: what i. I found over my, my career that, you know, what your eyes can deceive you, um, but the animals, measuring the animals and, and measuring the dry matter yeah, that and measuring the relative feed value, that's what gives you where the value. Um, some of these short-term high-performance pastures, you know, people drive past them um, or, or people that don't want to support it as a concept, they drive past and they see these, um, you know, lawn-type, Height pastures when they drive past, and I always have to point out to them that it looks like a lawn after the animals finish it because it's in the it's in the tummies of the animals. You know, they well, they've gee. eaten it all because the is so high. And your normal pasture, um, I always call it understocked overgrazed. So you don't stock it properly, and then they'll they'll leave thirty percent of the animal, thirty percent of the the plants that seem to be a little bit less palatable behind and then you never touch them. So you you find those um pastures you are not utilizing everything that's growing in the paddock with these short term high performance pastures, you know, every plant, every kilo has potential to be be eaten. And um and that's I guess that's where the we can talk about the, the fertilizing and the and the management of them now well, if you like.
0: Yeah, let's get into that. So what do we need to do to to make these produce to begin with and then keep them producing.
1: Okay. So just remember emphasising it. They're only about 8% of your, your land area, maybe 10. Um, the yeah. ones that do trading and still keep breeding, they tend to maybe go to 15% of their farm in these pastures and the rest is just whatever it is, you know, natural pasture, improved pasture. So that's, that's the, the area we're talking about. So the inputs are, uh, quite high in these areas, but you, you're getting a good return on them. So I usually, um, obviously you start with soil tests, but you usually double your phosphate that you would be normal pastures. If you're super phosphate or, or phosphate's your normal input, obviously make sure your phosphate source has um, sulfur. So, cause that's quite important for, for all your plants. So I usually you know, do 250 kilos of super phosphate, or equivalent. I will put generally around about two hundred kilos of nitrogen over twelve months. Um and just to I clarify usually put that. It Is on that for
0: two hundred kilos of urea or two hundred kilos of N itself.
1: Good. Thanks for pointing it out. Yeah. So actually N itself. So so I always look at about fifty kilos um Every season—that's the best way of putting it. You can push it harder and and I'll talk about the good and the bad of that in a minute. But but I would usually have these pastures sown in the you know the autumn as soon as the heat of summer's gone. You can spring plant them too, and actually, it's there's a good reason to spring plant Italian ryegrasses because you you'll almost guarantee to get an extra six months out of them if 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 your grass grass is based on an Italian so just a bit of a tip but they're usually sown in autumn so you obviously use your starter type fertilizer and, and make sure you got your you know um, probably 20-25 kilos of phosphate which you can put on when you plant um, make sure you get about at least 10 kilos of sulfur in that maybe 15 and then your first nitrogen is going to be what's in your starter fertilizer and and as you would obviously you've been telling your audience uh, don't don't exceed around 20 or 25 kilos of nitrogen when you plant so you so you you get your grass out of the ground and then um usually you would have a look at it yeah, as it's coming out of the ground make sure you've got no insects or mites or anything that you might need to deal with slugs for example as well and and once you've satisfied uh you've got a pasture, you probably would take it to about six to eight weeks do your first graze and then after your first graze you would put maybe 80 to 100 kilos of urea on so that's giving you around about your 50 odd kilos of of nitrogen and that will take you through to your second graze which would be just on the shoulder of winter and then I would put another dressing of nitrogen on then to give you more winter feed. Um, it's the less efficient use of nitrogen putting it on in winter time, but these will give you positive weight gain in the winter about half a kilo a day um, with with your know, yeah, cattle sheep are obviously equivalent, um, and that's important feed then. And then in that winter period, I would also use a growth regulator called gibroic acid or ProGib or or whatever name you want to call it, but it's a it's a it's a growth regulator that makes cells elongate, which is how plant cells grow. So to get more winter feed, like I said, your second graze on the shoulder of winter, I would put nitrogen on and I would put some gibberellic acid out as well. And you might be at that time controlling your weeds if there's any thistles or whatnot that you need to. And that'll give you. Good winter production, and and then as you come out of winter, um, I would put another, you know, odd fifty odd kilos of nitrogen on, and that'll set you up for spring production. And then this is the key management trick with with nitrogen in October, is when your ryegrasses and the ryegrass hybrids and your fescue types will be going reproductive and if you've got a situation you'll have feed everywhere from these pastures in the spring because they all these species grow really well in spring and right when you think you shouldn't be needing to put nitrogen that's when you hit nitrogen again on it because your, your grass species if they're a little bit low in nitrogen which you can't really tell but they will because they're producing a lot of dry matter, though there's a bit stress for nitrogen, every tiller will be a terminal reproductive tiller. Uh, so you need to stimulate your ryegrass in that, around about October with a hit of nitrogen to create what they call daughter tillers, and they're vegetative daughter tillers. If you put it, if you put it on earlier than, say, mid-September, they'll just be used to create more um, daughter tiller, uh, more reproductive tillers. And, and the grass will terminate as you get into summer. So to get them to be a biennial or perennialise, if you want to call it that, you put, put that nitrogen on um, around about October, which is usually people look at you like you're crazy because they've got more feed than they need. But this is how you get it to grow through. So your vegetative daughter tillers will be what creates your dry matter during the summer and what t- takes the grasses through the next year and that's how you get them to last two three four years by by that strategy um so that's that's the fertilizer program and then on the anniversary of planting the pasture you would put your you know your phosphate and your sulfur out usually as super phosphate the second time round, and you, you know you 250 kilos a hectare and, and by then most users if they've never done it before, but then they're happy to invest the money in the fertiliser because they can see what value they've got. Yeah, they've of, seen
0: uh, those results. So if we, uh, if you hit it with that extra bit of uh, super and nitrogen there at the end of the season, you, you'll then be able to carry that pasture through to the next year. So going into it again, start kicking off that, that pasture, as you are saying, we'll, we'll need to hit it with super and I'm guessing a bit of nitrogen as well just to pick it up, fire it up and, and get it going early while it is still warm so you can get some biomass there before mm. winter?
1: Yes, correct. Absolutely right. So one thing I didn't say is, um, and you would be aware, of this ryegrass is uh, a three-leaf tiller. Um, so so if you look at the tiller ryegrass, you'll have three full-grown leaves. And then when the fourth one starts to grow, the bottom one dies off or senesces. And then if you let it grow the fifth leaf, the second one from the bottom will die. You only have three live leaves at any time. So when you're grazing ryegrass, particularly um, when it's stressed in summer as they are, because they'd be stressed for a bit of a drink sometimes and of rainfall, and they could be stressed from being grazed. Um, you You always leave always remember there's a three-leaf tiller so you leave that bottom leaf hole or maybe half half of the bottom leaf um, in each of those tillers or the grass so when you graze in summer i usually keep it simple and say people just graze it to five centimeters not any lower um the animals will graze it evenly so it's not as hard a thing to us than than you think so and then as soon as the heat of summer goes so that's um, March that's when the ryegrass can start putting on new tillers so the so you the last tillers you get is like the end of October and that's why you hit it with nitrogen, the daughter tillers. And then then the reproductive ones run ahead head and they terminate. So hope you've got enough daughter tillers to take it through the summer. You're easy on it in the summer, not the gray's too short. And then as soon as um, March comes along. That's it starts to cool down, and and as you say, hit it with nitrogen, stimulate more tiller production, and your soil's warm, and you probably got. In, typically in these these parts of Australia, you got you know a lot of summer rain or and late summer rain rather and early autumn rain. You got opportunity to grow feed, so you hit it with nitrogen. Then again, um, and again. Uh, you'll be one or two grazings ahead than if you try to put a cereal in. And that's the second year, this the second autumn, the second winter is when people really see the value in them. Um, the first year is just like an alternative to a forage cereal. So so that setting it up to get through the summer and, and the autumn is is where you really make the money uh, return out of them. Yeah.
0: Right. And in terms of grazing management, so that, uh, that grazing it down to five centimeters, would you describe that as the, uh, the yes. coat can rule that I've heard before? Uh, start grazing when yeah, the coat, when the coat can can's standing up yep. and stop when she's on her side.
1: Yeah, my other one is your is my mobile pasture meter is your hand. So I know people got different sized hands and fingers, but I usually suggest people um, put your put your hand. On the ground with your pinky on the ground, and your thumb pointing to the sky, and then each finger in a ryegrass pasture—that's that's you know 95, 100% ground cover. Just each finger is 500 kilos of dry matter, um, and then so if you've got one finger of height left, you've grazed it too hard, as you would note. Two fingers of heights about a thousand kilos of dry matter, and that's when you should. Get off these ryegrasses to to get the quicker um, regrowth, and right and, and dairy farmers will who yeah you know, can see it in the milk vat every day when they get it right or get it wrong. Um, they'll usually take their animals out nine hundred to a thousand kilos in the past, but now there's there's modern sort of thinking that you take them out at about 1300 1, kilos of dry matter remaining. And you get a lot more regrowth quicker. So so we're not, not necessarily recommending that, but but yeah, two inches, something like that is is where you five centimeters rather where you wanna be taking them out, generally speaking. Um and and with ryegrass based pastures, you know, if you each finger's five hundred kilos, so with the thumb flat on your hand, that's Two and a half thousand kilos, and if your thumbs up, it's around about three thousand kilos. So I usually um, say, people, put your hand on the ground, and if 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 you've got your thumb up, it's thumbs up. That's time to graze. That's easy way to do it. Just keep it simple, Um, and then and you just use your fingers as your pasture meter. Um,
0: Simple, simple as that. A lot cheaper than buying a rising plate meter.
1: Yes, and, and. and a rising plate meter um, um, is a little bit deceiving because the stiffer and, and less digestible your grass, the better it breeds. Um, so I'd I, I had a lot of work with ryegrass breeding and tetraploid versus diploids and, and even these hybrids, and the rising plate meter um, misdirected you towards going towards um, less digestible. Varieties and options, because because it'll yeah it'll support the weight of the, the rising plate meter, and it might give you a false indication of the animal performance. So yeah, yeah,
0: I um we got one for that oats trial I referenced earlier to try and speed things up, and we thought, well, we'll just we'll uh you know take a reading of the uh, of the oats on the plate meter, and then do a dry matter cut, and we'll graph it all up and take a line to work out the calibration. And uh, when I graphed it up it looked like I'd shot the screen with a shotgun. There were dots everywhere and there was there was not a line uh, to be drawn. Yeah. Uh, it's just as you said, it all comes uh, down to whatever whatever plant was the tallest, not so much whatever plant had the most dry matter there. Uh, although if you had a exactly right. uniform pasture yep. you, you could calibrate it uh, against that. It's just yeah, not suited to different variety trials and no no but it's it's
1: it's good it's a good indication though don't uh, for sure yep keep going
0: yeah and so rotation time like you've taken the cattle off how long do you think till you're back to grazing I, i gather that'll differ over the year but uh would you be you know normally talking two weeks a month maybe month and a half over winter what are we looking at
1: So I I usually say to people, as you're well aware, you wouldn't just have one paddock of it and they go in and out. So um, the animals are generally, you know, a group of animals will generally be a little bit calmer in these pastures. So even you just have a hot wire if you don't want to use solid fencing. But I usually recommend people have four, four management areas, four pastures, and I usually... Again, trying to keep it simple because everybody's busy. I just say well move them once a week. You know, have four four blocks and six that'd be better again, but um have four blocks and move them every Monday to the next one or move them every Wednesday, whatever whatever um is most convenient. And then you'll find that will generally work for the ryegrasses, because ryegrasses being a three-leaf plant, to, to get the optimal return. Per hectare of live, live weight gain is that you graze them every three weeks and then you so you you graze for a week three weeks recovery and graze them again so four a four paddock system will let you do that a five paddock system will probably as you're alluding to um, or even a six paddock system will just give you that extra bit of growth when when the rainfall and the temperatures aren't ideal for ryegrass growth and again you know ryegrass is the freak of nature so unlike other temperate species once you get to 30 days they drop off significantly in palatability and, and utilization uh, think tall fescue think coxfoot and phalaris um, ryegrass will still allow the animals to to fully utilize it the digestibility is and palatability is still there but if yeah, you if you let it go over 30 days, um, you, you'll just get less, um, you know, return per hectare of live weight gain, but still still an advantage to do it. Um, so I, I recommend maybe five or six paddock system one week on and, and rest and just rotate around. There is also, for those who really want to turn this into a um, a pasture fattening machine, I've got clients who... Measure regularly because they background feed for feedlots, um, so they might have animals 120 to 160 days from weaning to you know, feedlot entry weight. They have shown that if you move the animals about every three to four days, you'll get better animal forms again. Because you put cattle in a in a paddock, they'll run around and gorge themselves trying to get to the ice cream before their 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 mates. And if you leave them there more than three days, they start sitting around, um, you know, enjoying life and, and, uh, and they'll eat, the intake drops down. So they would tell you that you move them twice a week. You move them after three days and then after four days. Yeah, it gives you an average of three days roughly. So they will move them um, Monday and Thursday, or Tuesday and Friday, or something like that. So that's that's a way of really pushing the the envelope in terms of um, animal performance.
0: And what sort of stocking rates are you looking at uh, when you are doing those sort of moves, or even just those weekly moves through four sections?
1: Yes, yeah, sure. So it's it's a function of of rainfall, but. Um, if you're um thinking you know a a typical improved pasture that's um uh, well I'll start at the beginning so a naturalized pasture you would probably produce just um uh, with no fertilized fertilizer maybe um yeah two to three kilos of dry matter per of rain, so it's not very efficient with um a sort of general Pasture um, with, with maybe every top dressing of super phosphate every second year, you might get three kilos, four kilos per millimetre rain of dry matter. And if you've got an improved pasture, um, like a perennial type, uh, you might get five to, to eight kilos of dry matter per mill of rain. So, the, so we're probably saying, you know, a well-managed perennial pasture well fertilized might be doing say fifteen dry sheep equivalents, something like that, is the carrying capacity. And your native unfertilized pasture where I was talking about before, you might be down to two, two or three DSC. So these high performance pastures, um they're much more returned per of dry matter per mill of rain. So you'll be producing um typically yeah, eleven, maybe thirteen kilos per mil of rain and and that's equivalent to probably if you're running a well-improved pasture at 15 16 dry sheep equivalents you're around about 30 dry sheep equivalents for these short-term high performance pastures to give you the the idea of what you're carrying so remember the intakes high so a steer would be rated yeah, you know, say say it's a three three fifty kilos, four hundred kilos, might be rated at seven DSE, dry sheep equivalents, but with these high performance pastures, they're probably consuming more, so they're more likely rated at about nine or something in that order, the dry sheep equivalent. So you might be running about three to three and a half steers per hectare, um, you know, day in day out on these systems. Just give you. A feel for it,
0: um, which is over one to the acre, uh, which is you know sort of what you're budging on on a good oats crop. So
1: true, true, and and you will do that with oats crops, but but you'll be doing this more months of the year than an oat crop. Now you'll be you'll have nine months a year when this is really humming along, and three months generally during summer where you you want to just back off a bit to look after your, the longevity of the of your pasture. So it's quite quite significant. Um, Another way of looking at it is um, I always talk, because people understand this as well, when I talk about live weight gain, like carcass, well, well, let's say live weight gain per 100 mils of rainfall. I'd always relate it to 100 mils of rainfall because then it stops people saying, oh, they're doing really well because they're lucky. You know, they get more rain or they get more storms or something like that. So, So that's my other benchmark I usually... Express the people so so natural pasture with no inputs or very little per hundred mils of rainfall you might get um five to fifteen kilos um of live weight gain per hundred mils of rain so uh a low input you know but good natural pasture with with um, legumes you might get ten to to twenty five kilos of live weight gain. Per hundred mils of rain, um, less less well managed improved pasture. So you still got exotic species like you know some perennial ryegrass and fescues and in uh, phalaris. You might get twenty to thirty five kilos per hundred mils of rain. Um, a really really well managed managed improved pasture with high inputs. So you you've got a perennial pasture and you're um, throwing lots of fertilizer, not having it wanting for fertilizer. You might get fifty to eighty kilos per 100 mils of rain. So you you can see it's bigger, big advantage while you can maintain a, a improved pasture, what you can gain from it. Um, but these high-performance pastures, these short-term high-performance pastures, you can get maybe 90 to 120 kgs per 100 mils of rain. So you can imagine the typical high-rainfall zone pastures probably, you know, degraded, improved pasture. To, to a naturalised pasture, they're doing 10 to 35 kilos per 100 mils of rain, and then you put this system in, they're doing like 100 kilos a hectare um, of, per 100 mils of rain. It's a big difference, so you can understand why they can go from an um, enterprise where they just sell wieners and, and are at the mercy of the of the market on the day uh, um, and, and the rainfall in the regions around them, um, or they can take control of their their animals that they're breeding and and have these high performance pastures set up and and actually finish them and 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 get them off before they go through their second winter. That's 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 the big advantage. Actually, getting the cooler cooler climates as you go down south into Australia, or or you get high in the tablelands. so that's that's the advantage of them.
0: Yeah, which is. It's yeah, really uh, it it really opens up your options. Um, you know, you've always got options with feed. Um, yeah, whether it's keeping stock longer or increasing your your breeders or um you know, even opening yourself up to adjustment if you've if you got more feed than you need at a particular time. There's there's always options with grass. Yeah, yeah. It's
1: um yeah, what's what's the rule? Um you know, if they're always putting weight on every day of their life they're going to meet the market spec that's towards the premium prices and it's a and they're going to have the best eating eating um, experience so you know MSA Meat stands australia grading will always they always grade high when they're on these type of pastures because they they don't go two steps forward one step back in winter like, mm. like many animals do on in australia so so that's 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 the advantage of of the system like like we said before and and like you say you take control so people take control of their farm and their and when they want to market their animals so they can they can wean their wean their their animals they breed and, and then circle oh i want to just tick them along a bit in a back paddock but then I'm going to put on my high performance pasture system for 120 days, 150 days. And I'm going to hit that premium it was March or it's June or, or it's um, leading up to Christmas, whatever it is, they so can take control. Um, it's like a, a grazing feedlot almost in a way. Um, and then you've got other people like you are alluding to that. They just converted the whole farm into a, these high performance pasture system and they just background feed for feedlots and they some of them buy and 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 sell like a trading operation but they they usually get a name for themselves and you the buyers for the feedlots will just just by default because it makes their life easy they just ring them and say look i've got on, on my books i need a 80 80 steers that this weight range, what do you think you got? And they say, yeah, come over and just draft off what you want. And they're 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 the the go-to for for the buyers. Um, and they sell in the paddock. So you you generally obviously you would be aware there may be less agent fees involved there too. And then and then even a step further then people will actually just as you say adjust the paddock. So you've got people that um, want to push a development of a genetic line of cattle that they got um you know you you wagyu and you wagyu crosses for example and they'll just they'll just hire the land of people of these pastures i've got clients that um some people are breeding very good performing wagyu genetics and they just they just um doing adjustment on it uh and other people background heifer. Dairy heifers, and uh, and you just have your agreement where you just um, you know paid per kilo weight gain, and, and this is guaranteed weight gain. You know your income, um, even without having to worry about the market. So it's a very good way to turn your 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 property around um, into a, in a profit, and and you can do it quickly too because yeah, improved pasture. You put a a perennial pasture, you you can't really get. That pasture performing well for you for for the first 12 months. You you put Flare's pastures in in the autumn, you can't really graze them until they run the head and and perennialize themselves with their dormant tiller buds at all, almost. I used to say to people put your Flare's pasture in, and and if you're going to love it, lock it up and give your animals a Christmas present. That's the first time they graze it. Um, Fescues. they're quicker, uh, but then they still produce better in the second year, as does Coxfoot and, and perennial ryegrasses, their second year better than the first year if you're talking about perennial species. And then obviously tropicals is a different world, which we're not covering today, but um but these these short-term high performance pastures, if if the farm has been newly purchased or the farm's been devastated by droughts and the economics of having to keep animals alive it's a quick way of turning the, the cash flow around um, and getting the, the farm business to recover yeah
0: yeah just a, a good way to um, well I, when you're recovering from a fire or a drought you've almost got a blank slate there that's if um, you're gonna gonna yeah, rebuild exactly. rebuild better exactly
1: exactly I was going to say the advantages and disadvantages so. One of the things we found is the, some of the the users of the system, they will push it very hard and you can and put more nitrogen on. I've had some clients put 250, 300 kilos of nitrogen on and, and they get the production out of them. But we found pushing animals so hard, we start getting metabolic issues and, um, we weren't quite sure where it's coming from, so I actually got the vet school from Sydney University to investigate this, and we found that the nitrogen in the system were actually having a lot of um, crude nit- crude protein. As you understand, nitrates in your grass will get measured as crude protein. So we had crude proteins in these rye grasses that were getting pushed. I'm not lying, You know, 35%. Food protein and it was not structural protein, it was actually nitrates in the grass. So we actually had some farmers, a bit like they will talk about with bloat and loose, and they say, Well, okay, I'm losing five percent of my animals, but the other ninety five percent are doing so well I can I can handle it. Although it's quite a quite an emotional <laughs> thing to see animals dead in a paddock. So so what we found was if they want to push the system that hard, we started substituting your normal fertilizer, your synthetic fertilizer, to um, recycle organic material from from such as feedlot manure or poultry litter, and and we were applying that, uh, calculating what nutrients are in the manure, and and um, and substituting that instead of normal fertiliser. And we we're having the same sort of input of nutrients that they are wanting, but of course it was drip fed by the manure. We didn't have the animal health issues. And, and we also found the manure, obviously, you know, it's a box of goodies and you know, you're getting potassium that most people will generally not use in these extensive grazing systems. So we're getting potassium response out of the legumes and we're getting element responses that we realised were there, but we weren't um, appreciating. So we're getting better animal performance out of these pastures for the same amount of dry matter. And we're getting um, more longevity out of these pastures. That's when we started pushing uh, an extra year out of them. So if someone's getting two years, they'll be starting to get three years and three years they started getting four years. Um, So it was actually a good, a good outcome from uh, I guess, as you say, you know, some some mis misfortune, we actually got a a better system again. Obviously, you've got to be near enough to a feedlot, but I I usually think um, you've got to be within two hundred kilometers of a feedlot or or poultry shed to make these economic because the cost of freight. But it was certainly worth it. Um,
0: yeah, well, I I ran the um, numbers on putting manure over my uh, cropping country and. Yeah, that uh, once I ran some totals there, the uh, with the cost of diesel these days, it took the shine out of it pretty quickly. Um, mm. yeah, so really, just in in wrapping up on the high performance pastures, yeah, um, you know, what what are your your just basic top tips?
1: Okay, um, I would definitely get help from someone that understands the agronomy of your area that there's pasture agronomists and there's pasture agronomists and, and some are very good in different areas, but you, you want someone that that's can help coach you through using them. So, so my top tip would be find a, a, a pasture agronomist or farm consultant that, that also understands animal nutrition, that, that'd be one of the, my top tips: have someone coach you through. You'll have um, your peers, your family members, and, and pub talk, and that think you're a little bit mad compared to you know not following the normal way of, of farming. So often, I'll find people just need to be a little bit um, aware that that if you're thinking outside the square with these pastures, that you'll get a um, a bit of a social stigma and some people don't worry about that but other people are, are considerably influenced by that so I would um yeah make sure you've you've got your, your buddy system with a, a good um pasture agronomist, understands nutrition have an open mind um have a good seed drill or have access to a contractor with a good seed drill and I'm thinking a no-till seed drill um just so you can Present the paddock um, as is, with different undulating terrain and little gill guys, so so the, the drill can actually sow into a, a pasture that hasn't been landscaped with ploughing, and, and and then stick to the discipline of the of the fertilising. Um, so, like I outlined the program there. You know, my favorite saying—you <laughs> might laugh—is, you know, if it looks a little bit off, the pasture just add nitrogen. That's the best way of um, of saying it. They they're a freak sort of pasture, especially when they're based on on ryegrass. So you you just got to feed them. And I've never seen anybody go broke putting nitrogen on on ryegrasses. It it all works. So they're they're my tips. Get good help. Have an open mind. Stick to the inputs, um, and and just make sure you've got animals that are able to put weight gain on. It's not a, not a charity pasture. Don't put you know animals that aren't quite quite right. Um, just just put ones that can capable of putting life weight on.
0: That's it. And if people want to find more about high performance pastures and um, yeah, how to introduce them into their cropping season, is there an easy spot for them to read up more on it?
1: Um, it's not in the popular media. So, um, like I've produced, uh, some papers in grassland associations that you can look up these days. So you can look up the New South Wales grasslands society and you look up the Southern, um, Australian grassland society or grassland society of Southern Australia, I think it's called. You'll find my papers where I've got these points, Outlined that we talked about, and then the International Grasslands Congress, two thousand and twenty-one. I actually spoke at that, and then there's a paper, and there's a uh, a slide deck, and there's also a video that you can people can go through and and um, watch and watch and take notes. That's that's the best way of of doing it. Otherwise, yes, your your temperate Grass companies will probably be able to set you up with a, a similar system. So I'm thinking, probably um, uh, it used to be PGG Wrightsons. Um, I can't figure their name at the moment. And, and also w you've now. got continent. AS and W has merged as well. So so you've got Heritage Seeds, which is now um <laughs> it's, Yeah, Baron and then. Um, DLF is now PGG Rights. And so they, those two companies would be able to give you some insight in the system. It's not something that they have on their, um, like their advisory sort of fact sheets. So so it's, ga- it's going to be probably look up high-performance pastures or short-term high-performance pastures, I'm not trying to sell myself, but just find those papers that I presented and you'll get – you get the system outlined as we talked about, especially that international grasslands congress um, that would in 2021. You'll you'll see the whole slide deck that that we're probably um, will summarise what we talked about today, Martin. Ah,
0: yeah. oh, that's good, that's good. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. No worries. Right, on. well we'll catch you on the next one. Once again, I'd really like to just thank Rob for coming on the podcast. It's a really interesting tat, really given me a lot to think about and uh, I may even just bite the bullet and sow some ryegrass instead of oats next year. I've already got the seed this year so it'll be oats this year. We'll be hearing more from Rob in the future when we talk about growing hemp and hemp agronomy under the new best management guide that he's helped to co-author. So until then, if you want to keep up to date and keep finding out a bit more about what we've got going on, check out our Instagram at In The Paddock Podcast, same handle for our Facebook, you can find us there. And we're even now on YouTube, so head over to there, search In The Paddock, or just search my name, Martin Murray, you'll find me. I haven't actually tried searching myself in a while, so I don't actually know what will come up. Anyway, until then, keep at it.